people want additional information in addition to something that specifically answers or satisfies their intent. Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Data Stories. My name is Moritz Stefana. I'm an independent designer of data visualizations. In fact, I work as a self-employed truth and beauty operator out of my office here in the beautiful countryside in the north of Germany. And I am Enrico Bertini. I am an associate professor at Northeastern University in Boston, where I do research and teach data visualization. Exactly. And on this podcast, together, we talk about data visualization, data analysis, and generally the role data plays in our lives. And usually we do that with a guest to invite on the show. Yes, but before we start with our guest, a quick note. Our podcast is listener supported, so there's no ads. So if you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us with recurring payments on patreon.com slash data stories. Or, if you prefer, you can also send one-time donations on PayPal by following the link on to paypal.me slash datastories. Yeah, in the last few days, we've just seen a few new donations come in. That's, that's always a great feeling and always wonderful yes. and much appreciated. Especially if you send us a little funny note along with it. It always makes us smile. Yes, thank you, and thank you. Yeah, and also, if you can afford it and do the recurring thing on Patreon, this definitely keeps us going and... Um, it's, it's, again, much appreciated. So let's get started. Uh, we have a cool yes. topic today. We'll talk about language and data visualization and uh, all that surrounds that. Um, but before we dive into that, quick note on the Information is Beautiful Awards. So some of you might remember we had Amanda McCulloch from the Data Visualization Society on the show a few weeks, months, can't remember, ago. Um, and we <laughs> mentioned that the awards are being rebooted. They're a bit like the mini Oscars of data visualization and really try to celebrate um, all the diversity and variety and excellence in the field. And, and now the winners are announced. We didn't win anything, Enrico, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, well. but, but a lot of <laughs> other great people, which is awesome too. And uh, yeah, um, on the website, you can see all the winners. Uh, shout yeah. out to our podcast colleague, Ali Torben, who won Community Leader. Much deserved. Congratulations. Lots of other great people. Yeah, it's it's great to see this event is back. I'm, I'm happy. Yeah, it's just nice to to have a celebration, yeah. you know. And, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, every once in a while, um, excited about what's what's happening in all the the different facets of database. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but let's go to the main topic. Our guest today is Vidya Settler. Hi, Vidya. Thanks for joining Hi, us. Hi, Vidya. Hi, Moritz and Enrico. Thanks for having me. Yeah, welcome on the show and thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us a bit about you? Um, what's your background? What are you excited about? What are you currently working on? Sure. Um, so I'm Vidya Settler. I head Tableau Research. I've been with Tableau for 10 years. 
Um, I got a PhD from Northwestern. My background is in natural language processing and computer graphics. So I'm generally interested in the problem space of understanding the semantics of data and how that can help inform meaningful visual depiction of information. So Tableau has been the perfect place for um, leveraging that skill set. Um, before I joined Tableau, I was at Nokia Research for seven years. Um, I manage a wonderful team of interdisciplinary research scientists who work on problems in the space of applied ML, multimodal interfaces, HCI mm -hmm. techniques, augmented reality, and so forth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Already back in the day, augmented reality. That's, I uh, know, it's all coming amazing. back full circle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And what's nice, too, today is that we have a true long-distance call all around the world. <laughs> Enrico is on the East Coast in the US. I'm in Europe. And where, where are you based, Vidya, right now? Right now, I'm actually in Mumbai, in India. Right. Um, I'm teaching at the Geo Institute, um, teaching a course on data visualization, but incorporating aspects of um, semantics and intent, some of the NLP mm. with data visualization stuff to a class of uh, 60 students. So it's been a really great experience. Nice. Yeah. So wow. that's a little break from your usual like research work at Tableau? Sort of. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still kind of doing both, but it's, uh, it's been really refreshing to interact with the local population. And uh, mm -hmm. for me, it's just a way of sharing what I have learned over the years to, with people um, from my home country, um, India, and just helping them understand the value of data visualization and why it's important. So I, I feel like mm -hmm. India has reached that stage now where everybody understands the value of data visualization, but uh, they don't necessarily have the training um, and the access to resources. Um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it's a really great opportunity to get the local population energized and understand the importance of the field. Yeah, the, the, awesome. there's so much going on in India. I, I actually visited last summer and oh, uh, for the first time, yes, for a wedding. So oh, for an Indian awesome. wedding. So <laughs> that's that, the best. That was really, really yeah. special. It's a good way to get started. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> the full package. The full package. If you got to go to a wedding, you got to go to an Indian wedding, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Vidya, I yeah. think one, one reason why we wanted to have you on the show is because you recently published this, this book together with Bridget Cogley called Functional Aesthetics. And um, reading these books, me, me and Moritz realized that the, there's a lot in the book that is related to semantics and language, which, inter which interestingly is not that much discussed that much in the world of data visualization, right? And, and data analysis as well. So we thought we would focus this specific episode on the relationship between semantics and language and data visualization. So maybe we can start by exploring or understanding what are the main connections between data visualization and language and how did you get into this specific topic? Yeah. Um I honestly got into this topic kind of serendipitously. Um, in general, I, I think information is meaningful when you understand uh, what it's about, the context of it, 
Um, it gets enriched by additional information. And when, when you have a better understanding of that information, you can figure out meaningful ways of communicating what that information is about. And given that we are very strong visual creatures, um, a very logical place to start is conveying that information visually to a user. Um, so a lot of my previous work before I joined Tableau was exploring the space of um, figuring out how to effectively communicate large uh, pixel, megapixel imagery on, on small mobile screen devices. This was a time when smartphones were big, and that was primarily the work I did at Nokia. And um, there are a lot of connections to uh, data visualization from the graphic space. Uh, in, in a lot of respects, I would say it's, it's a much more tractable problem because in the graphics world, you're trying to find semantics within pixels of information. But with data visualization, there's a lot more structure and built-in semantics already that is provided, right? We know the chart type, we know the mark type, we know the attributes, we might know the, the, the attribute types. So there's a lot that we can start off with. So it really gives um, um, an extra foothold in terms of coming up with semantically meaningful ways of depicting that information. So I kind of started my journey um, at Tableau exploring ways in which we could provide smarter defaults to data visualization. So we noticed that on Tableau Public, users spent a lot of time uh, going to the web, trying to find images, creating icons, and associating them with sports visualizations with their favorite sports teams or flags or other types of icons. And so this was a project that I started with Jock McKinley uh, when I joined Tableau is, can we actually figure out a way to use natural language techniques to effectively query image databases, get back these images and use graphics techniques to come up with a visually consistent yet aesthetic palette of icons and automatically suggest that to the user. So these were these little you know, micro problems along the flow of analysis where I was exploring how can we provide reasonable defaults to reduce the friction so that people don't have to step out of their workflow, do these manually intensive tasks and come back. And so that's, that's where I started. And then moving on, I started exploring uh, natural language interaction with data, um, which we can talk about in more detail in a bit. Um, but there is this general um, structure of using language and grammar for both defining charts and also asking questions of charts. Uh, because at the end of the day, um, data visualizations are a manifestation of visual communication. So the communication is the underlying theme. And the best way to think about communication is through language. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, there, there's so many cross connections there, right? It's like, like so language many. shapes our thinking so much. And, and also when, when we talk about data visualizations, often we say, Oh, you need to get into a dialogue with the data, right? Or you need to interrogate yeah. the data or, uh, have a yeah, conversation. Yeah, the metaphors that we use. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And that all shows us already that 
implicitly this is happening. And I think what's fascinating is that your work makes it explicit and, and really creates that that tight link between language and, and visuals. And yeah. Um, yeah, and it's very, very interesting. And I guess Evisor is, is a project that was sort of seminal there, both for you personally, but then also probably for yeah. the field in terms of for the first time allowing and the paper it says it's a prototype system that enables a user to have a conversation with their data using natural language and that sounds like really <laughs> exciting yeah. Right? yeah so can you tell us a bit about it how it came about and and how it developed yeah uh for sure um so the name actually uh Evisa is inspired by the MIT um chatbot assistant uh, Eliza um And I, I love the project so much that my vanity license plate is also called Evisa. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, true, true, true Bay Area techie at heart. Um, but you should send us a picture so we can put it in the blog post. I will oh, yeah. totally we do should that. do that. Yeah, and I, I, I bump into people randomly at grocery stores saying, "Oh, I saw your car in the parking lot, so you must be somewhere in the store." Um, so it's great. Um, Yeah, so um, I, I, the, the underlying premise of what I think what made uh, Evisa interesting was communicating with data and asking questions of data using natural language was not a new problem. People have done it for years. I mean, the database community started with it where they had these pseudo SQL statements and they were asking questions of their data. What made... Um, Evisa unique, and I want to acknowledge that it was a collaboration with other members of the research team, um, was we were really looking at not just single queries to data and getting back a response. As you indicated more, it's, it's an actual conversation with data. So for example, if I am talking with you and I'm talking about, you know, my evening here in Mumbai, you will respond and you will ask me a follow-up question. You might say, what is the time? And I might say, you know, it's, it's 8.30 in the night. So there's this back and forth exchange where questions are not restated every time. We build on the previous context and knowledge and have this sort of natural progression of dialogue uh, between me and, and yourselves. And so I was really interested in emulating that human-to-human -human conversation behavior with respect to a computer around data. So I looked at what we call language pragmatics, which is looking at the context of the previous query. So if I ask, show me the large earthquakes near California, my follow-up question is, how about near Texas? I, I'm, I'm not restating, show me large earthquakes near Texas, because that's kind of unnatural. So that was kind of the first, I would say, novel contribution of that work is just really implementing this pragmatics model in the context of an analytical conversation. The second I, uh, insight um, with building the system, which actually got Tableau leadership excited, was there was a previous concern that these natural language systems needed to be perfect. They needed to completely understand what the user was saying, and they needed to generate a perfect answer. Otherwise, uh, people would get annoyed. And I think some of it largely came from systems like Microsoft Clippy and other, other places where, you know, if, if the system, you know, constantly made an error, then people would get annoyed. 
But if you actually think about the nature of human to human conversation, our conversation patterns are not perfect. I might, I mean, well, Enrico, you thought I was in Bangalore and I said, no, I'm actually in Mumbai. And I, I corrected you, but I was not mm -hmm. offensive, right? I mean, it was just a conversation. <laughs> Hopefully I sure. didn't offend you. Um, <laughs> so, so how could we actually emulate that? So if a system can make a guesstimate, um, you know, going back to the earthquake example, maybe the system comes up with a reasonable guesstimate of what a large earthquake might mean and might set it up to a magnitude of six and greater on the Richter scale and surfaces that reasoning back to me and says, hey, you know, you said large, I wasn't quite sure what you meant, but I took a guess and I, you know, assumed you said six or greater. And I might, you know, come back to the system and say, no, it's actually, you know, I live in California right by the earthquake fault and I'm not joking. So, you know, large earthquakes to me is anything four or greater. And I might tweak mm -hmm. the slider that the computer produces to me. And to me, that was... And when we actually uh, tested it with users, A, you know, users were actually not bothered when they had to correct the system because it was just a small tweak in a slider. And B, the system actually remembered that setting so that when a user asked, you know, about large in, in a oh, subsequent okay. interaction, mm -hmm. the system remembered that and the users were delighted by that. It's like, oh, you know, actually mm -hmm. you remember the context, right? So if Enrico remembers that I'm actually in Mumbai, I'd be like, you know, that's great, Enrico. You have a great memory, right? I mean, I'm actually <laughs> going to compliment you. So it turned out people actually loved that sort of back and forth interaction. So something that was previously viewed as a hindrance or a limitation was actually a strength in terms of modeling human to human dialogue in terms of a human to computer dialogue with respect to data. And as I indicated, um, you know, data is a lot more tractable because it's not trying to make a model of the entire universe. The universe for the system are the bounds of the data. So all mm -hmm. of that made it a very tractable problem to move the work forward, including productization. Yeah, that, that's one aspect that I really like of the type of research that you and your team have done over the years that is not... I mean, the technical contribution is remarkable, but what is really interesting is that you have done a lot of also human factors type of research on top of it and trying to understand what happens when people interact with this type of quote-unquote in intelligent systems, right? And I think there, there's so much to do in that direction and really understanding how users' behavior also changes as they learn how to how to work with these machines. One thing that comes to mind is like, I guess even the way we use Google, we just adapt because we know that we, we don't ask Google the questions in the same way we would ask to a person. Or or to Alexa, even. Or to Alexa, exactly, That's right. right? So I was wondering if you if you observed the same the same kind of behavior where after a while people just know how to ask the things so that they will get the information or the results that they want? That's a really excellent question and insight. Um, so what we have found over the years, uh, even with search systems and natural language interfaces, is people don't like to be wrong. They don't like failure. So they will adapt to the computer speak of the system. 
um, humans really understand very quickly what a system can or cannot do and readjust their model and their view of their interactions with the system. Um, which, which is good in a way because then, you know, you don't have, uh, too many frustrated users, hopefully, and they, and they sort of adapt to, um, whatever the system can support. But there is a downside to it. Um, when, when you're looking at the telemetry data of how people are using systems, the, the window of opportunity to understand what are the types of queries the system cannot support and what would make for kind of useful extensions and improvements to the system is a very narrow time window. What we have found is within a couple of days, people will change from asking questions that the system does not understand or partially understand to only the questions and the repertoire of analytical functions that the system can support. And this includes search. And so you immediately see a drop-off of failure rates for all these users. So you, we really have to catch these new users within a one to three day window, which makes mm -hmm. it kind of yeah. challenging when, when we're using um, customer data and telemetry data to help inform how we can improve the system. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's a tricky aspect is the discoverability in terms of what yeah. can I even ask, right? It's, like, it's a bit like with gesture interfaces where you just try and figure out, okay, maybe swiping works, maybe zooming, right? It's the same <laughs> with language because first probably you ask anything and then you realize, yeah, it can't quite do everything. And then you're like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, it's, there, there must be some limitation, but then you need to figure out what, what is the vocabulary what I is, can use. Yeah, and exactly. What, you know, what, what does work? Um, yep. And yeah, so that's, that's a fascinating challenge. Um, so, so one part I'm really interested in is also this transfer between research and then the putting it into the product. And uh, um, yeah, Evisa in some way found found its place in Tableau as Ask Data or probably some further development, but I guess it yeah. was started with Evisa, right? And so, yeah, I'm curious, like how, how does this work? How did this specific prototype and, and piece of research make it into being part of a product and what are... Yeah. You know, what's the process there and how did this work? And, you know, sure. I want to learn all about the process. <laughs> sure. Um, so as, as mentioned, I mean, th when I joined Tableau back in the day, I was fortunate enough to um, interact with Chris Stolte and Christian Chabot um, and Pat Hanrahan, you know, the, the co-founders of the company. And we were having these conversations when I when I joined Tableau, where you know Crystal T said, you know, NLP is really hard, Vidya. I I don't know how we can actually crack that nut. And even if we do crack the nut in research, how are we actually going to productize it so it works for any customer, right? Because we are not Tableau doesn't cater to a very specific vertical. Um, and, mm -hmm. and there were there are previous systems like IBM Watson that have catered to very specific verticals, including you know chess or healthcare. Um, mm -hmm. But you know, uh, Tableau in a sense is more of a generalist type of platform. So that that was kind of the problem. But when I demoed Evisa, um, it, it, it's kind of funny because uh, the the story there was I was in California, and everybody else was in Seattle. And 
Back then, for various reasons, I was using voice to talk with device. I just thought it would be so cool to talk to the data with voice. I mean, you could do texture voice. That was not kind of the, the main part of the story. But I was like, yeah, I'm going to demo this with voice. And I asked everybody to mute themselves. And I did my whole demo. And I said, you know, don't interrupt me in between because it's going to catch your voice and mess up my demo. Um, so I, I did my demo for 10 minutes and then um, I had to rush off to a doctor's appointment. So I just said bye. I didn't even wait for Q&A and I didn't make I didn't really think about it. Right. And and late in the night, you know, I get an email from Chris Dolte. It's like, OK, can you demo this to Tom Walker, who, you know, at that time was, um, you know, making the call in terms of which teams are funded and, and stuff like that. So long story short, uh, Tableau leadership got really excited about the project and, um they decided, okay, I think it's time that we invest in NLP. And this was also a time where the tech industry was hedging its bets in this space. And, and this is, I think, mm -hmm. one of the things. It, I don't think it's one um, criteria that indicates or dictates what you know, ha, you know, what what makes a successful tech transfer. It's it's a multitude of factors. You need to have some sort of uh, perspective that you can show that it works and the market needs mm -hmm. to be ready for that. The customers need mm -hmm. to be ready for that and the company mm -hmm. needs to be ready. So there's so much that has, I mean, all the stars need to align. And uh, we yeah. were fortunate enough that everything did align. But the problem back then was um, Tableau was not known to be an NLP company. I was the only NLP person in the entire company right. and it was a much, very small yeah. startup. Um, so how do you actually convince people who are working in companies like Google to come and join Tableau and work on, you know, mm -hmm. NLP? So we made the decision to look for smallish startups in the Bay Area, because I'm based in the Bay Area, to try, try to see if we can acquire some seed technology um, as foundation and then I could help build some of the stuff that I had in Evisa on top of that platform. So after, uh, you know, several months of vetting uh, various startups that I was involved in, and this is the other piece, you know, uh, when you're talking about doing um, tech transfer research projects, you have to be all in. So that might involve doing technical due diligence for startups, interviewing people. Mm -hmm. You have to be all in. You have to show that you are... Uh, motivated to make it work. Um, there, mm -hmm. there is kind of a lot larger sociological um, aspect to this. Um, so, long story short, um, we um, identified the startup called ClearGraph, and they came on board. And um, I moved from research and um, you know joined the product team. Uh, starting first as a lead engineer, um, you know, working on production quality code. While I was always writing code, it's very humbling to write production quality code <laughs> with your peers, mm -hmm. including junior mm -hmm. people, uh, critiquing and reviewing your code. And, but, it's, but it was really good for my soul. Um, and I um, definitely improved my um, coding chops after that. And, and I soon enough, I became the engineering manager on the team. So I was responsible for, you know, all the release planning, working closely with the PMs, doing code reviews, writing code myself, 
um, sneaking in features from Eviza into the product <laughs> um, and writing papers. Um, Melanie Tori, uh, who is currently at Northeastern, was a very close collaborator of mine. And so she and I would, um, you know, buddy up and in, in figuring out the research aspects of the project, you know, how do we actually support intent understanding and semantics so that we can build on top of this platform. And so I stayed on, stayed in the team for a few releases of Ask Data and then ultimately moved back to research. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like the way it's implemented now, what, what can you ask Ask Data? Like let's say the, the earthquake <laughs> data set, right? What, what are some of the the questions you you could ask yeah. and where you would get a, a meaningful chart so, back? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, Ask Data um, connects natural language utterances to Tableau's VisQL um, command mm -hmm. stack. Um, and we uh, and the feature leverages show me to uh, display the top recommended chart that show me suggests. So we, we do mm -hmm. leverage some of the Tableau um, underlying architecture and combine it with um, the parser and the natural language input that's part of AskData. So that being said, We support um, five basic analytical functions that are tied to Tableau's core analytical stack. You know, you can ask questions about aggregations and groupings and drill downs, filters and sorting and various combinations of that. We also have um, vague concepts, kind of like the, the large mm -hmm. and the near in the earthquake examples mm -hmm. also implemented, but they are numerical vague concepts. So it understands things like low, low, you know, low sales, um, expensive wines and comes up with the guesstimate and shows a widget. And as a user, I can refine those settings and um, it, you know, also supports these follow-up questions. So some of the pragmatics behavior as well. Wow. Yeah. That sounds quite useful. <laughs> <laughs> I was it was interesting for me to hear that initially the prototype was meant to be used through voice. And yeah. I, I don't know if, if it's actually possible to do that with Ask Data. Or is it no, only by we decided to do okay. we decided to do text. Um, you know, from a business standpoint, it makes sense. I mean, if people are all sure. at their desk talking to their data, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. may, it may annoy it may annoy their um, their their neighbor in the cup in the cubicle. Um, no, I mean, to me, the the like voice voice to text translation is more or less a solved problem. I I was just using. Yeah a off-the-shelf API to do that. So it was more of a footnote, and I just thought it would be cool to, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> use my voice and talk mm -hmm. to the data. It was more of a cool effect. Um, but, you know, I am exploring, um, you know, voice with data stories, actually, um, now as part of my, my research portfolio, just in the space of text and charts. Um, so it'll probably come back to me full circle. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I was also curious to hear from you. I really like this story that you started in research and then went to engineering. And I guess now you are back full time in research, correct? Yeah. 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 And um, this is really fascinating. I'm, I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit more details about what it takes to to go from a 
from a research prototype to an actual product. I guess the yeah. last mile is probably <laughs> really the hard. Many miles. So, the many miles. The many miles, <laughs> right? <laughs> There's, it's, a big, it's a big hike. Um, yeah. How many years did it take altogether? Like yeah, from exactly. Kicking it off. To um, it, it was about it. two years. Um, oh yeah. It was okay. about. I mean, yeah, it's we, not even we, like... we shipped. We shipped our first uh, feature on time. I would say a little over a year, um, and then mm -hmm. you know we we had uh, that was kind of the minimal viable you know feature that we wanted yep. to get out to market, and then. We added more to it, and we had these constant releases um, that we sent out. But you know, back to the question, um, you have to be all in. So if you want the right type of sausage to come out, you need to be part of the messy sausage making. It's very hard um, to sit in research and try to get the team to build a product based on what you would like to see. Um, mm. you have to mm -hmm. roll up your sleeves and be part of that process, um, for a lot of reasons, because unlike research, engineering works very fast. Every day there are standups, every day there are decisions being made, um, by sitting outside the team, you're not part of that conversation. You're not part of those serendipitous mm -hmm. decisions where it's like, oh, there's a bug. How do we fix it? Oh, by the way, by, if we fix this, we can add this additional feature. That doesn't happen by setting up a formal meeting every week. Um, so mm -hmm. you lose out on a lot of that if you're not part of the team. And then the second thing is when you're part of the team and you're writing code and being part of the process as a team member, there is um, a whole notion of trust that is and credibility that is built. Um, mm. I will say that you know, engineers are great people, but they are very skeptical of us researchers. They're like, yeah, you know, you guys are all smart. You write papers. But, you know, when rubber has to hit the road, I don't know that man, you know. Um, so, so, you know, you, you have to spend some time with the team and building that credibility um, in order for mm. them to take you seriously. Get the street cred. <laughs> exactly. Um And I think it's a really good opportunity, uh, especially when you are in industry research to work on code. Um, there, you know, there's nothing as empowering as being able to have an idea and being able to make it real. It may not be the perfect prototype, but it's superpower if you can actually take an idea and implement something and show it beyond a PowerPoint mm -hmm. deck. Um, Yeah. And when, when you join a team like that, you understand the complexities and processes that go into shipping a feature. Uh, it's much more than what meets the eye. There's so much that goes into stake. The performance, you can't have regressions, you've got to build a very sophisticated test suite, um, and you have to listen to customers, uh, you have to be very careful of release planning. So there's so much that goes on and you kind of develop a profound respect for the engineering profession. And it's, it's a way of bringing that back into research. Mm -hmm. And how do you 
then balance, not getting lost in the weeds. Like this is very much like, you know, in the trenches and like the, the frog's eye perspective, basically. Yeah. <laughs> But how, how do you yeah. keep that that vision then and, and not get lost in the, yeah. oh, this doesn't work and that doesn't work and yeah. then that's yeah. broken, you know, because engineering is fundamentally a lot about fixing something that's broken, right? <laughs> so, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so how, how do you keep it, that big, big picture? I think it's vision? very important to have a good working relationship with the PM on the team because at the end of the mm -hmm. day, the, the PM is the one that really um, hashes out the roadmap for the feature and what does it look like over the years and being involved in those conversations um, mm -hmm. and... and um, going back to that document that, you know, a PM would write on the, the roadmap and the strategy of the feature kind of keeps you honest. Um, and I think it's just a calibration. There are some days when I would be lost in the weeds because my code wouldn't work and you just can't sleep when your code doesn't work. You want to get it working. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> um, but we made a conscious decision uh, where, you know, I continued to publish while being on an engineering team and um, in fact actually getting some engineers to uh, be on papers and patents with mm -hmm. me. And so when you try to balance off, you know, writing code where you're kind of in the weeds and the trenches of the process, but at the same time you're working on, you know, the research aspects of it and you have to articulate that in prose, that really helps you look at the bigger picture holistically. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. that combined like what with... what makes this uh, unique or what, exactly. what are the fundamental, and, and, and just like fundamental mechanisms and so on. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. And it, it being very grounded about what you mm. do. And and I think it's, it's a double word score when you have a feature and it is backed and supported by well-done <laughs> research, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I, sure. think, I yeah. think that's the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, or That's, it invites new research, right? Then yeah, get yeah. Speaking, of course. Right? Yeah. 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 Oh, cool. That's that's so so interesting. Um, so maybe zooming out a little bit, one thing I wanted to ask you, um, I think what is really interesting is that when I think about Tableau, to me, Tableau is like the thing um, that basically introduced a specific type of interaction to for people to create visualizations, right? Before Tableau, mm -hmm. it was basically Excel and a few other things. And Tableau introduced this idea that you basically um, select attributes and you drag them into a panel and and now you have some visualizations out there, right? And then you have, now with, with Evisa and as data, you have a new type of interaction. Um, I was wondering, I always felt that this space where trying to figure out how to express what we have in our mind so that a machine can understand it that produce um, data analytics and, and, and visualizations is a really interesting space. And at the same time, it doesn't seem to be as, I would say it's not as much explored as the visual side of things. But mm -hmm. it seems to me that is at least equally relevant, if not even more relevant. How do we express our intent? How do we tell yeah. a machine what we want, right? Yes, right. And um, what I just said, I think Tableau and then Evisa for me are two, two really strong um, um, milestones. I would say these are two milestones in, in this sense because they introduce new, completely new paradigms 
on how to express what what is my intent and what I would like to what what I would like the machine to do for me basically right right yeah and and I think there there is a spectrum of um, you know the type of analytical intents that people express and what is supported so you know to your point something like a direct manipulation type interface like Tableau can be very concrete, right? I click on a bunch of attributes and I drag them to rows and shelves. There's very little ambiguity in terms of what the user wants to see um, mm. uh, in terms of the charts, right? Um, and even with that, the the level of ambiguity is, you know, what what specific chart do I want to see and kind of show me has that rule-based recommendation model where it'll suggest a top chart, but it'll also highlight, you know, other charts that are also viable. Um, now with language, um, you can definitely be a bit much more abstract in terms of how you express your intent. It can be vague, it can be fuzzy, um, and there could also be new paradigms of analytical intent. Um, so, you know, uh, one of the, one of my papers that was presented at Viz with, you know, where Eamon, Gaba, and Cindy and others um, collaborated with me was just exploring the language of comparisons and how, mm -hmm. how you can actually interpret comparisons and show meaningful representations. And I would argue that through language, the, the whole space of comparisons can be pretty complex and nuanced when compared to direct manipulation. There's cardinality. You can compare one-to-one, one-to-n, n-to-n. Um, you can uh, be very specific or vague about the concepts. You know, if I say, when is the safest time to fly? You might, you know, the data might indicate the morning, but there is an implicit intent there that I not only want, you know, morning as my answer, but I probably want to see how much safer is it to fly in the morning compared to other times of the day, right? I mean, mm -hmm, if flying mm -hmm. in the afternoon is slightly worse than the morning, I want to see that, right? I want to see the whole distribution. So there's so many explicit and implicit ways of expressing intent that you, one could do uh, more easily with language as opposed to a direct manipulation interface, which kind of opens up a range of interesting problems and opportunities. Yeah, and I guess if I remember well, you also have um, kind of like a mix of, I don't remember if, if this is true for Evisa or as data, but I have seen systems where there's a natu natural language component, but then you can also interact with some elements of elements. the sentence yes. through yes. Uh, direct manipulation. Is that correct? That's right. So in general, we have found that the pattern of developing mixed initiative systems tends yeah. to be effective because there are certain things that I just want to tweak directly. You know, going back to the earthquake example, if the system comes back with a, a Richter, you know, magnitude of six and greater, I may not want to type saying, actually, I want the, I want large to be interpreted as four and greater. It's a lot easier for me to just grab the slider and tweak it down to four, right? So there are certain things that lends itself a lot more convenient to just click on marks. You know, if I just want to see, um, you know, 
some data in a particular region and I see an outlier, it, it's just easier for me to click on the outlier rather than asking a question. Or I might mm. click on it, uh, you know, it's called deictic referencing, where you circle, maybe you lasso select some points and say, tell me more mm. about this. Um, and this is a very complex concept. What does this mean? It's hard to express that in language. I mean, we do this all the time as humans, right? We point at things and say this. We don't explain and describe the object that we are pointing to. So I think there is a place for every sort of interaction. And the key challenge is to figure out which flavors of interaction lend itself better um, for certain types of questions and intent. Yeah, that, that's so interesting. Mm. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I'm now curious. Uh, I, I, new ideas pop in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to voice, I'm wondering if you ever explored the voice channel as an output, right? So mm. what if I want to communicate data through, say, Alexa, right? Alexa yeah. is telling me, rather than visualizing something, yes. it's telling me something yeah. about the data. How do you, how do you communicate data verbally? <laughs> Yeah, so we actually um, um, had a paper at CHI last year where we explored analytical chatbots using uh -huh. um, this Greichian model of cooperative conversation. And we essentially studied the behavior of three flavors of chatbots uh, using Slack, where it's um, text-based input and the output is a combination of text and images. Um, we just we had just a text chatbot which did not have any provision for any sort of imagery or charts, and then we had a pure voice-based chatbot that was using the Echo device. And so we first did kind of Wizard of Oz studies to just understand the expectations um, with respect to these various mediums. It's kind of the Marshall McLuhan paradigm of medium is the message, right? Um, And it was very interesting, particularly with voice, um, but not surprising if you think about it. So people's working memory is very limited. Um, so if I ask, what are the most expensive wines in Napa? And this voice chatbot goes on and gives me a speech about all the, you know, the top five wines. By the time it tells me the last one, I would have forgotten the first one. <laughs> and so what we realized is people, and this is something that has been studied in kind of general voice chatbots where it will give you a snippet of information saying, you know, the most expensive wine is this. Do you want to hear about the others? And it's so it's like a mm -hmm. follow up mm -hmm. question, almost like this right. back and forth. And you're like, sure, tell me the next one. And so it's like conversation chunking. The other thing that we noticed was the, the issue around trust. When people, we, we were using, so we implemented these chatbots and they all shared a common parser. So while we knew that the performance of all these chatbots were comparable to one another, we found that people trusted voice chatbots less when compared to the text ones. So they wanted mm -hmm. the voice chatbot to repeat the question. <laughs> Just to make sure. Yeah. Just to make they, sure. They got it, right. They yeah. got it, yeah. exactly. Uh -huh. And it, so it's very uh -huh. interesting. Um, so we, <laughs> we found a lot of um, differences. And we also found the types of intents that people tend to ask of text versus voice chatbots to be different. 
with voice, it's almost always these fact-finding questions with single responses. Mm. You know how you know, kind of like how you ask Google, like, tell me what the weather is going to be, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like these single ones. You know, what what are the sales looking like today for this region? But with other types of chatbots, the questions are definitely much more complex. They are much more compound. People tend to chain multiple questions together. So it kind of goes back to that humans adapting to the computer speak of the system. But the new insight we learned was they humans also adapt to their own limitations of interacting with the system because they know that they mm-hmm. have a limited working memory. And so they, they figure out, okay, to circumvent my limited working memory, let me simplify the types of questions that I will ask of these voice chatbots. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And, and do you think, like, when, I think we touched a bit on that, but like some of your systems respond with a chart and, and then others respond with an answer or like a fact. Yeah. Like how, wh- wh- when, when is what being asked yeah. for or what was better when? Yeah, and, I mean. Does yeah, it depend so on the people or on the task? or like? I think it's all of the above. Um, when, when, when you have the luxury of a text interface with real estate, people want the single answer but they might want additional context that supports the mm-hmm. answer. They right. might want the distribution of other, you know, regions, how well it's like, you know, like especially these superlative questions, you know, the cheapest wine or the best-selling product. People want to know how much better or worse is that answer when compared to the rest. So the data distribution is very important to people. Mm-hmm. It's the same when you search for a product, you always get these big tables with the feature yeah. comparison and still yeah. the winner is marked, right? But you want to see the full matrix. Right. So you just yeah. know that everything's correct, <laughs> even That's though everything right. is made up anyways on these sides. But, yeah, so so this is this is this is not a new paradigm. I mean, search systems have been and recommendation systems have been doing it for ages, right? Like mm. if I go to Google and I type in my flight status number. It's a fact-finding question, right? I type in my flight number and it'll get me the status. But there are other documents beneath it. The page just doesn't contain only my answer. There are articles that support, you know, my query and there's, there's other stuff going on. The same thing with something like Amazon. I might be very specific and I, I want like polka, a polka dot, you know, pink shoe made out of this brand, right? (laughs) <laughs> and maybe there's only one pink polka dot sh- pair of shoes, but mm. Amazon will show other related stuff. And you could argue that's just their business model because they want to entice you to buy more stuff. Yeah. But it's sure. also just context. People want additional mm-hmm. information in addition to something that specifically answers or satisfies their intent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's also some generosity in providing a bit more around it than just yes. literally what you ask for, right? It's it's like the like <laughs> the thing you actually ask for is like the bare minimum, basically, and it's 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 good to to provide something extra with it. Yeah, if yeah. somebody asks you how exactly. are you doing, and you say yeah. I'm fine, and you just stop yeah. there. <laughs> it's <laughs> you, weird. You, it's That's weird. a German way of answering. <laughs> <laughs> 
that is so funny. Okay, no follow up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but exactly. And and then we're back to these flows and the processes, and there's actually yeah. like that. There's actually like a, a mutual process going on. And I think yeah, that's, it's called that's so cooperative conversation. Mm -hmm. And Grice. Mm -hmm. Uh, Grice came up with these, you know, principles around cooperative conversation. There is a back and forth. There is a give and take. Um, mm -hmm. There is a notion of manner and relation and the quality of the mm -hmm. content and the amount of content, keeping it very relevant, but it, making sure you're polite. So there's, there's so much that's oh, yeah. going on. And we have found that in, uh, to a large extent, a lot of those cooperative conversation maxims hold good even in the context of analytical chatbots. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, also in the book you mentioned this idea of register and tone. Like yeah. in, in natural language, it's not just what is said, but also how it's said and certain like yeah choice of formulations of words, they suggest a certain maybe social yeah, status it, between the participants or, you know, all these little things. There's so many between nuances. the lines, basically. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah I mean, yeah. yeah. And I think with register, you know, at least in the book, we focused a lot on kind of the visual representation and how do you actually set the tone and the mood. But um, I've also been very lately interested in, you know, data storytelling and the types of words and the choice of words that you use. Um, in mm -hmm. these um, stories can also set the tone. Um, and it, it depends on the audience. I mean, uh, the, the running joke when we wrote the book, actually, um, and, and uh, Bridget will laugh about this, is she would always tell me, Vidya, you need to lower the register when you're writing your chapter because this mm -hmm. is not just a PhD audience. So I, <laughs> I appreciated her candid feedback and I, I've, you know, I use it all the time now. It's like you have to figure out who your audience is and find the right level of information and how that is communicated back to the user. Mm -hmm. So it's both about content, but also again, the, the form in which like, the, form, the framing, yeah. right? That the you framing, provide. the yeah. presentation, the use of color, um, you know, there are other visual elements. Um, is it playful? Is it more formal? Um, and, and you can even have that with um, voice or, you know, chatbot interaction. Um, It, you know, if a chatbot greets you saying, hi, you know, welcome, this is, you know, data that you can ask versus, you know, just giving me a meta table and saying, what question would you like to ask? That's a very different mm. sort of tone. And it really influences how people interact with these systems and the system's expectations. So, Vidya, one, one thing I'm curious about, um, do you see a role of language as a way to, say, help people interpret data visualizations, maybe through annotations or some sort of guidance. Yes. I believe there is, I can't recall if you're doing that type of research, but I've seen similar things either from yeah. Tableau or other researchers. Yeah. And um, this idea that you also can accessibility, generate. Accessibility, obviously, right? Providing alternative uh, yeah, exactly. means yes. of accessing the same info. Yeah. Right. So, um Actually, when we were writing the book, um, we had a chapter on, um, you know, text and charts. And, mm -hmm. you know, we were curious whether, because, you know, a lot of the practitioners 
And and even we have been told about, you know, this whole data ink ratio, right? I mean, thanks to Tufty <laughs> and other books, it's like, oh, you know, you don't want to add too much text. Uh, the charts want to speak for themselves. Just add a little bit. Um, and then we did this, pa- you know, project, you know, which was a this paper that was presented by Chase Stokes um, from UC Berkeley, where we we really wanted to understand. Oh yeah, that's a super interesting right? one. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, is there a notion of over texting? Um, is there a notion of too much text is too bad? And it turns out, no. People actually yeah. love text. Yeah. Um, and, um, and quite often, you know, there are so many semantic levels of text, right? There's, you know, text that describes very low level statistical properties all the way to text that describes key takeaways. And, you know, there's been some work that I've done with Manish in that space as well. Um, but yeah, to your point, I think there is a very exciting, uh, opportunity around, you know, figuring out how text can be used along with charts as a first-class citizen for people to understand their data. And they can be pretty effective, you know, text annotations and titles and descriptions as scaffolds to the user. And this kind of comes back to something I think that, Moritz, you were alluding to at the beginning of this um, podcast was um, this cold slate problem where users struggle in terms of what they can ask of the data. And you can use text and in conjunction with recommendations saying, you know what, you asked about this, this is the answer, but there are all these other things that you can ask. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I, I think it, it can really be an effective way of scaffolding the conversation. It's also very helpful for answering a more complex analytical intents, especially these why questions. I think why questions are very hard. We haven't really cracked that nut. It's like, why is this phenomena happening? Um, if I am looking at the pound and US dollar uh, fluctuation around Brexit and I say, why is this drop happening? The data does not really have an answer and I have to go outside, you know, probably use natural language, go to access web articles and come up with um, a summary of my understanding of what happened and bring that back and formulate a very pithy annotation to the user. Um, so supporting these why questions is going to be a place where text is uh, definitely going to play a very uh, important role. Hmm. How do you feel about the whole new generation of deep learning based models in this context, like GPT-3, yeah. the transformer model? So there's a whole seems to be a whole mm-hmm. like paradigm shift in that space. And yeah. Like GPT-3 is, is a large language model trained on all of the internet, as it seems, that yep. seems to be able to answer like a lot of these common sense yeah. based questions. Or is it all just um, pretend <laughs> knowledge? I mean, uh, or, uh, what's your feeling? Um You know, language models have really come a long way um, over the recent years. Um, And, you know, GPT-3 has been extremely promising for answering and learning certain types of intents and questions and being able to reason about information and even just learning stuff that's, you know, goes above and beyond the initial training set. What I have observed, though, uh, with these large language models when it comes to um, data analysis and data exploration is that their capabilities around numeracy 
and understanding the numeracy aspects of data is still very limited. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I am sure with you know systems like DALI, the graphicacy aspect might be uh, teachable at some point. We might get to a point where we ask a question and it'll learn to generate an effective chart. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So DALI generates images based on prompts, yeah. actual text. But the, the numerical an understanding yeah. of data phenomena is still a hard problem to learn because it's mm-hmm. extremely nuanced. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. I, it, it might head to a place where it is. So, so that being said, <laughs> being able to take these traditional grammar-based approaches that I have used as well in a lot of my research and retrofitting it with, the, with large language models can satisfy a good number of analytical intents. But at this point, I have found that you still have to augment these language models with additional logic that might come from these grammars mm-hmm. or heuristics to solve numerical understanding of data that these that these models simply are unable to do or can do right, uh, right. in a limited fashion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. But they could add that aspect of providing somebody hints with when does the gold price drop generally, right? And and is might that be related to that specific you know yes. piece of data I have here, That's right? right. But, You're right, probably the the uh, synthesis needs to happen. Yeah. So I think that is where we are. But, you know, if if we if we talk in a couple years, it might be different. I mean, this this area (laughs) is pretty cutting edge and things have been evolving quite quickly, which is exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. This is a space where I feel like something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. (laughs) It's like, (laughs) you can almost feel it in the air. So it's, uh, or maybe not. Yeah, it's so fascinating. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, because as you say, it it feels like, oh, there there must be like an amazing application for all this stuff. But at the same time, sometimes things look like 95% finished, (laughs) but you never get to the 99.9 that you need, but you you just get stuck at the 95, right? It's like, it's a a bit of smoking mirror but I will say that, you know, these language models have surpassed the initial notion of just being smoking mirrors. They actually work yeah, pretty well for, for sure. a certain flavor of questions um, and, and yeah. just um, language understanding. Um, so the, I, think, I think the challenge and the opportunity is to get them to really understand data and uh, just the numerical understanding of data. Um, but... Yeah. As as I indicated, I, I think it's a very tractable problem because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's already figured out to understand the knowledge of the world, right? Um, so when when you know certain properties and attributes of the data, um, you know, comp- you know, figuring out the numerical understanding of of concepts is is probably teachable. Yeah. Yeah, this combination of systems is, is interesting, I think, to say, like, maybe there's different modules or agents that keep yes. each other in check, or like there's a, like a statistical, like, professor module that <laughs> makes sure all the, the outputs are, like, are statistically yeah. correct. And, and that's right. Otherwise, sends a new prompt that forces the model to, to update or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I thought maybe we could wrap it up with a last question for Vidya. Mm-hmm. For maybe you can tell our listeners if they want to learn more about 
um, how to use language in data visualization, what are the interesting directions. And I would say even practically, right? Say I'm a database designer, practitioner, listening to this. How do I learn to use, to even be more aware of the role of language in data visualization? Yeah, I, I will Other say... Other than your book, I guess. Yeah, I know. I was like, shameless <laughs> plug there. That was an easy um, one. Yeah. That was an easy one. <laughs> Just like, read the book. Um, read the book. Because, the bo I mean, jokes apart, the book has a pretty um, extensive bibliography of resources yeah. from, you know, various language disciplines, um, starting from kind of traditional NLP and information literature all the way to American Sign Language, because that's Bridget's background. That's um, fascinating, so, too, by the way. So, yes. Right, right. And that is kind of how we bonded. Um, so I would start with that, and I would encourage readers to have a look at some of the recent work that's come in the space. I mean, there's a sizable number of papers in the space of language um, and visual analysis that is being published at conferences like Viz and CHI, um, even Eurovis. So uh, that's another represent, uh, you know, uh, recommendation. Um, a lot of people ask me about just kind of core NLP stuff, but you know, there's there's plenty of courses on Coursera to just understand language models and intent. So if people are very serious about implementing or trying out lang natural language algorithms, you know, there are Python libraries. There's course lectures, including, you know, some really good ones by Chris Manning from Stanford. Um, so I would start with those and then kind of work one's way uh, down to uh, reading the state-of-the-art literature in this space uh, concerning visual analysis. Cool. It's a whole, whole world out there to discover. It's one of these things, once you open that box, <laughs> you see how much box, right? fits into it. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a big box. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but a, a really fascinating one. And I think one that has been underappreciated, like everybody's just focused on the visuals and the visual encoding and perception and da, 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 and, and the language yeah. is more than half of what we do, right? Like a chart with yeah. zero labels is is nothing, right? So it, 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 needs, it needs that language context. Yeah, right? exactly. And what I tell people is when people think about NLP and Viz, they always almost think about chatbots and talking with data. But there's so many other opportunities in the analytical workflow where natural language processing can help. It can help with intelligent data transformations under the hood. It can help with mm -hmm. joining of tables, especially semantic joins, where the columns of values may not be identical, but they are related. Um, so there and, you know, coming up with meaningful encodings for data. So there's so many sub processes as part of that analytical workflow where semantics and language understanding is very useful in addition to kind of the more obvious applications that we talked about. So you're not going to get bored anytime soon. No, no, I'm I'm going strong here. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. No, it's I think that's that's really great advice and yeah, hopefully our listeners will now always look for the the conversations and the dialogues and the Yeah. the register and the tone because once yeah. you've seen it you can't unsee it. <laughs> so, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, that that was uh, yeah, really nice. Thanks for 
um, yeah, shedding light on all this this fascinating stuff and especially this this practical like experience. No, it was uh, it was it's great talking about it with you both. Yeah. I enjoyed the conversation. Wonderful, and we'll check back in a few years how how things Fun have intended. developed, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Wonderful. That's right. Okay. So thanks so much, and yeah, see you soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, and um, I really enjoyed it, and I look forward to listening to it and all the other podcasts that you you come out with so i'm a big fan so thank you very much thank you thanks so much <laughs> thank you all right take care bye bye, bye, bye. hey folks thanks for listening to data stories again before you leave a few last notes this show is crowdfunded and you can support us on patreon at patreon.com slash data stories where we publish monthly previews of upcoming episodes for our supporters or you can also send us a one-time donation via paypal at paypal.me slash data stories or as a free way to support the show if you can spend a couple of minutes rating us on itunes that would be very helpful as well and here's some information on the many ways you can get news directly from us. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, so follow us there for the latest updates. We have also a Slack channel where you can chat with us directly. And to sign up, go to our homepage at datastory.es, and there you'll find a button at the bottom of the page. And there you can also subscribe to our email newsletter if you want to get news directly into your inbox and be notified whenever we publish a new episode. That's right. And we love to get in touch with our listeners. So let us know if you want to suggest a way to improve the show or know any amazing people you want us to invite or even have any project you want us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Don't hesitate to get in touch. Just send us an email at mail at datastory.es. That's all for now. Hear you next time. And thanks for listening to Data Stories.